0: Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. We want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. So in this episode, we talked to Bradford Hollingsworth. Dr. Hollingsworth is a herpetologist for the San Diego Natural History Museum, where he manages the specimen collections of local San Diego reptiles and amphibians, among other species. So he took us into these collections and walked us through and showed us some really cool stuff. So we're gonna let him tell us all about what he does. Yeah, so we're down in
1: um, one of the collections facilities of the San Diego Natural History Museum. And this is where we have our um, research collections for amphibians and reptiles. And so it's a collection that dates back uh, more than a hundred years. And it's a regional collection of preserved um, frogs, salamanders, snakes, lizards, turtles from Southern California and Baja California that was used by scientists who study mainly diversity,
0: but the collections are used for many, many, many other things. Speaking of that, what was the original purpose of these collections?
1: Originally, collections were primarily made to understand um, uh, alpha taxonomy and um, species-to-species comparisons. And as they've grown, they've been used for um, many ecological studies, uh, distributional studies, uh, uh, conservation studies, um, and so um, now scientists want to you know, cut open the specimens that we have here, look in their stomachs and see um, what kind of prey items are being um, fed on by any particular species.
0: So one of the main advantages of having these collections is strength in numbers.
1: You know, if you think about doing a study where you need statistical rigor, um, what better place than to come as a collection that has 76,000 specimens? Or not any one species is represented with that that kind of number, but mm-hmm. um, you know we have you know you know 800 sidewinder rattlesnakes. And so, if you wanted to know anything about the ecology of sidewinders, a good place to start would be a
0: Natural History Museum collection. So he showed us his very special area of collections. These were called type collections. And the species in this collection were either named by people at the San Diego Natural History Museum or their colleagues.
1: So you saw that I just rolled up this cabinet door um, that was locked and it's a special collection Um, and we're looking at a series of about 60 jars on um, four or five shelves that are separated from the general stacks and shelves that you were just seeing and this is what we refer to as our type collection and earlier I was mentioning to you about one of the original purposes of making collections was for taxonomy and naming species from the first discovery of their existence. And a type series is um, the specimen that bears names. And so any one of these um, amphibians or reptiles bears a name. Um, Here's one I described with my major professor Lee Grismer. Um, this is Elgaria velasquezii, and this is the type specimen I collected from Baja, California, and we named it um, new to science about, what is it, about 15 years ago now. Wow. And so we're still discovering things, um, and this is one that I helped with the discovery in. So my one contribution haven't contributed much since.
0: Is but that a type of alligator lizard?
1: It's a, yeah, the Baja California alligator lizard. Um. Yeah, and so a lot of fun memories here of uh, the, the explorations that first the collector did, going out discovering the the animal in a area that hadn't been seen before, and then the scientist who goes and describes it and names it new to science and declares it, you know, a species onto itself. Um, And so that's, this is a kind of a special area of the collection because it it has a lot of the discovery portions in it. So type series are, bring back one of the main utilities of science, you know, research collections.
0: So naming a new species is a whole process in itself, but usually, scientists name it after people or places, but there are unwritten rules to this process.
1: Yeah, not your own name. Right. Oh, that's, uh, you, that's considered um, um, a no-no in, in taxonomy. There have been some that have proposed their, their own name, but the vast majority, um, 99.99% of names are after in honor of places, people's
0: and sometimes you name them after your friends which isn't always a good thing
1: oh yeah yeah and the, you know species that have you know diminutive genitalia are great to name after your friends it's like oh I'll take it you know I'll, I'll, I'll take it even though it's named after you know the dwarf penis you know salad you know whatever
0: I once read this story about Carl Linnaeus, who invented this whole species naming system that we use, and he used to name the ugliest and most undesirable plants or creatures after his rivals. But now we're going to get to the real strength of this program.
1: Yeah, so research collections are often um, closed to the public, and they're, they're meant to be what we call legacy collections for the use in science. And so you have to be a credentialed scientist to gain access to the specimens. And that's a very small pool of people considering um, the world today. And so um, the museum has launched a number of Atlas programs and we just launched our amphibian reptile Atlas. And this allows people to contribute to our base knowledge of diversity um, by their own observations. And we archive those observations and add them and augment um, the information that we have here from the, the science collections. And so it's really a neat partnership between science and, and the public. Um, the movement of citizen scientists is a huge movement here in the United States. And so getting citizens to participate in science endeavors um, does, it opens up a lot of doors. Right. Um, it educates people, it gets them involved, it, it breaks down that barrier where you don't have to be a credentialed scientist to be involved in what we're trying to do. And they're able to do
0: this using technology.
1: It wasn't until the, the advent of digital photography, GPS, and the internet, where we could start really opening up our doors to large numbers of people to come experience um, the scientific method as we do it when we're studying biodiversity. Right. And so um, those three things are, are key elements to allowing the citizen science, science movement across the nation to explode. Right. And it is exploding. It's, you know, we're, we're talking millions and millions of records are being captured by citizen scientists that are um, used in all sorts of projects. And here we're studying amphibian reptiles of our region, just one small segment of the citizen science programs. But, um, you know, we've been going on for a year, and we already have 8,000 submissions. And, you know, we don't bring specimens into the collection at anywhere near 8,000 in one year. So um, having this, this power of people to contribute their information kind of spreads the, the effort. It spreads it across a wide area and, and a lot of different interests. Um, I've loved it ever since I've started it. So one of the, the keys, though, is to make that connection is digitizing um, the old stuff, the, the specimens in the jars. Um, we, over the years, have been able to get that information out on the Internet, but it's only the written information. And people don't get to come and see um, the specimens themselves. So we've been um, the last three years. We've been digitizing and photographing the collection for display on the internet. So for every point on a map, you can actually see what you're seeing here in this room. The the snake in the jar is being displayed for um, you know the 14 year old kid to see or the the nature enthusiast that likes to hike in Point Loma. They can come see the historical basis of how um, information was discovered, Um, and so that's really neat to me. Is to make um, not only we bring citizen science into our projects, our projects are being put out for them to see, and that's the trade-off. And we're meeting them halfway um, in this effort. And so um, it's not just gathering their information. We want to take our information, give it to anybody. Who loves nature? And right. so that's the, the fun of it is that we can't, it is, a, it's not just a one way street. Um, and so that's really fun to me is to educate people of how science is done traditionally, uh, which is still a very powerful method.
0: It's, it's not archaic at all. So they're able to use the same old scientific methods, but with a lot more data points more is always better when it comes to data
1: and so um, the citizen science movement we think is going to be part of filling in our, our gaps um, we want it to reach a level where it augments it. it's at a scale that we would never have been able to achieve by working as individual scientists um, and so we have more real-time data. Uh, we have um, more, you know, concentration of data, um, and and that helps us monitor and track change, change through time. And we know there's natural change, but we also know that there's human-induced change, whether for the good of a species or for the detriment of a species. Um, and so, um, you know, they'll. The classic one here in Southern California is the American crow, you know, since the 70s. Um, it has exploded into huge numbers and prior to the 70s it never existed here. Really? Um, and so we see a positive change of urbanization
0: for this one species. Mm. The movement of citizen science is helping monitor the health of urban interface wildlife. Then, of course,
1: we, we see the detriment of some species that rely on, you know, natural landscapes and can't urban adapt. And so um, right now the citizen science data, the, the early stages, is being very effective identifying the urban adapters, because a lot of our contributions are for people within the urban centers, and they tell us what they see in their backyards or in their front yards or crossing their streets. And so we have a good sense of what species can live within the suburban, the urban setting. Um, and okay. so we can start understanding that the suburbia is actually, you know, okay with a handful of species. And there's been a couple ones that were surprising. Um, a boreal salamander showed up in University City um, a backyard. That Uh was quite a distance away from native habitat. And so, what is this animal that's usually that we think of being relying on natural landscapes doing in somebody's backyard? um, It started raising awareness that maybe it is an urban adapter. And so, we're hoping as the project moves forward, we'd see more arboreal salamanders. And we have hope that, okay, this animal that we thought was its landscape was being destroyed is actually able to cope with the change. Yeah, so um, the San Diego Natural History Museum's website has links to our project for you to contribute. Um, We use iNaturalist as um, a a, a partner institution or a partner group that's recording and um, doing all the, the heavy lifting with taking your submissions and your observations. And iNaturalist has been wonderful in designing systems that allow us to integrate um, what they're doing into what we're we're doing. And that's the age of um, where we are with the internet, where we aren't just building systems for one project. We're building systems that are able to integrate into many different projects. Um, And so um, within iNaturalist, we run a project called Rascals. Um, the reptiles and amphibians of Southern California. And so, um, so look for rascals on iNaturalist or look at the Amphibian Reptile Atlas through um, the sdnhm.org uh, website.
0: Unfortunately, there is a negative side of searching for diversity and making this data somewhat public.
1: Well um, in amphibian reptiles some of the negatives for people having access to biodiversity data is that um, there's a whole industry uh, for monetary gain involved with the pet trade uh-huh. um, And so just like um, you've probably seen plenty of movies about you know the parrots of South America being poached and smuggled or you can hear about you know rhino horns being, cut off of animals and sold around the world and so forth, or ivory tusks. Um, in our business, for snakes and lizards, it's not their parts, but it's for um, the individual in the terrarium, um, the wow factor that I have this particular species to look at in my private home. Um, and so the, the money involved in that is a big driver for people to um, go out and collect wild animals for the sake of putting them in terraria. Mm. The level in which it's at is not um, conducive to conservation. But, um, so, right. so that's the negatives, is that we're releasing information about um, where diversity exists. And if somebody wants to go out and poach those animals, um, some say that we're helping them Um, in that endeavor, and I would argue that um, this information is already known um, by the poachers. But this isn't
0: a new problem.
1: And that's been a long-standing issue um, for collection data for the millennia. Um, Is do you keep it quiet, locked in under locking key, or do you um, let it be known publicly to raise awareness um, that there are um, you know uh, a rare animal that lives somewhere but um, yeah, and i rather go with the enlightened route um, let people know that there's a rare animals you know maybe not specifically where <laughs> its hole is but mm-hmm. um, that it lives here in San Diego County right. we've been putting information on the web for um, a little more than 15 years now and um, I have not heard of a, a viable st- story that, you know, somebody took these, this data and used it for harm.
0: But how does someone get into this sort of thing? Where does it all start?
1: Um, as soon as I was, got my driver's permit, I would come down here to uh, um, go herping, and herping is what we call herpetology you're chasing lizards and snakes you're a herper and you go herping and so i'd get my friends and we'd come driving down here to road cruise for snakes on the road and it turned out that where i work now our first curator lawrence clobber um, invented road driving um, he was the first to report on how when he took his model t out to the desert roads he would find species that were thought to be rare um, warming themselves on the black asphalt, wow. and, and so here I'm working at a place where, as a kid, I would just you know hear about road, road cruising, looking for animals crossing the road, um, and I end up finding a spot to work that the inventor of that technique of wildlife watching was right here.
0: Since he started, he's actually seen a positive change in the perception of science and scientists. It's a good thing.
1: Society has been kind to scientists because now it's okay to wear the badge of being the nerd or the geek. You know, maybe 20 years ago, that a nerd or geek man would get you beat up. Um, And society has come around to be, you know, that has just alleviated a lot of our problems because I can declare that I'm, you know, I'm completely geeked out by nature. Right. You know and wear that as my badge of honor, my passions for nature you know go back to you know influences from my grandmother and you know my brother, um, and understanding that outlet of being connected to nature, you can have that passion as a kid and carry it through um, and still do what you love to do as a six year old uh, as a fifty year old um, so so okay. life has been good, you know. In society is getting better with um, accepting the science geeks as um, the ones that help, you know, cons- conserve the nature of the world or help invent the next,
0: you know, right. whatever. So, so yeah, it's been fun. So even with all of the bad things going on in the world, these are very exciting times in conservation. Scientists are using technology to expand knowledge and to ask bigger and better questions. And each of those questions will lead to better questions. I'm looking at technology solving our
1: problem with diversity in the next um, 10 to 20 years. I think we will have mapped out the diversity of amphibians and reptiles for this region. Mm. Um, And that's what I do primarily as a scientist. And so I will be out of business um, by the time I retire. Um, and so what do people do beyond that? Um, and that's where the real questions start, I think, is once we know the diversity, um, the real questions of nature can start being addressed, um, interactions, the food web, um, selection, evolution, Right. Um, and so I think we're, we're entering in a really exciting time because diversity will be figured out. We'll have all the pieces sorted out, um, named, know where they live, and now we'll start asking new questions. It's, it's gonna be a, a wild ride for the next 10 years, I think, with advent of genomic sequencing um, and the power of databasing on the internet. Um, and we're all set up for that with ATLAS. Putting all this information on the internet now will be the source of where people will go in 10
0: years from now to know what lives in their area. I'd like to thank the San Diego Natural History Museum, Bradford Hollingsworth for talking with us. We really appreciate his time. The Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy, the National Park Service for helping us out producers on this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker. So you can listen to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. But you can also look at our website, pelicanus.org. So here you can see photos of the time we spent with these scientists and be able to see where they work. All right, that's our show. Thanks again for listening.